electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the moment of truth for the banks, cryptos, and your money. As earnings season gets underway and Coinbase goes public, our investment committee debating what all of that means to the markets. And joining me today for the hour, Jenny Harrington, the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Michael Farr is here, the president of Farr, Miller & Washington. John Nigerian, Joe Terranova rounding out the four today. Let's check stocks at the wall. Record highs again for the Dow and the S&P. Dow's good for more than 200. S&P for nearly five. The Russell's having a really strong day. Yields on the 10-year sitting at one 63. All right, Jenny, so I got more new highs, but I've got some cautious notes out today that certainly got our attention. Maybe the most cautious of coming from Bank of America today says five reasons to curb your enthusiasm. Yeah, they're bullish on the economy, not so much on stocks from here. S&P is going to end the year at 3,800. That's an 8% drop from where we are now. That makes sense to you? We're not that cautious, but we are waiting with bated breath because the way we, and I generally agree with Bank of America's perspective, but just not with the negative spin. So we're looking at the market as needing to answer a lot of unanswered questions that'll only come with the passage of time throughout the rest of the year. So we see things like high valuations, but then there's strong earnings growth. We see fiscal stimulus, which is great, but debt levels and interest rates are going up. We see Fed support that's been terrific, it's not going to last forever. We all know the economy's on fire, but we don't know how much of that is really incorporated into the market. So we think that we just need to play out the rest of the year, see how these things answer themselves, and that that's what we need before we're going to say, yeah, we should be up or down from here. Right now, we're just kind of taking a pause and being careful. We also think that the rotation that we saw over the past seven months is going to continue. So you could still be in areas of the market that have really strong potential and really huge upside ahead. Um, you, don't need to, you don't need to have no return just because the overall market might plateau or back off. So, Joe, Savita Subramanian is the author of this note today. By the way, she's going to be on the closing bell, so she can answer for you know, the, the specific things that she says here. Um, she says sentiment is increasingly euphoric. She says valuations are lofty. Stimulus is at its peak. And they believe the market has overly priced in good news. So let me just ask you straight up. Is it time to be cautious or is it time to be bullish? Uh, I had said it towards the end of March that we were going to see technology experience a little bit of a rebound recovery into earnings. We're seeing exactly that. I think on the other side of that, the view does become a little bit cloudier. Uh, Scott, let's understand the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has grown by 6% so far year to date. What's the S&P up? 10.5% year to date. So is the uh, Federal Reserve balance sheet going to continue to grow? The economic optimism does not suggest that it should. And I think at some point we are going to be talking about a Federal Reserve balance sheet 
that will actually begin to pause. And at that point, I think equities and risk well, assets will pause with it. But everybody's been bullish lately, Joe. I mean, no, you haven't said that to, to me lately. I've got the Fed chair. He's been on TV a couple mm -hmm. of times, whether it was with Sarah Eisen or on 60 Minutes. I mean, he's dovish. Jeremy Siegel comes on and says we're in the third inning. There's nothing to even worry about until the Fed first signals it's going to do something. And that's not coming between now and the end of the year. Now, we, now we're getting cautious. This sounds like a different tone. So, Joe. So what I'm communicating to you is what the risk is for the market and the reasoning behind why we would see a pause on the other side of earnings. If the economic strength continues, if the economic optimism continues to be reflected both in consumer and corporate activities, I don't see how the Federal Reserve can continue to grow the size of its balance sheet. And there will be a point of reckoning at which if the Federal Reserve needs to communicate that they will pause the growth of the balance sheet, risk assets will pause at that time as well. It will ultimately be a pause that refreshes but that, to me, is the risk on the other side of earnings in an environment that you are correct, Scott. I've been communicating. It is sunny skies. It's incredibly calm. And it's incredibly favorable to be invested in risk assets. All right. I'm just making sure because you have been saying it's sunny lately, but then you threw in the cloudy word. So I was wondering if you changed your view. Michael Farr, bullish or cautious? <laughs> That's what I want to know. It, it does seem like a growing number of people were on the same side of the boat whether it was Siegel and, and other bulls who have come on the air and suggested that stocks have a long runway before we even need to worry. Do you agree with them or we have problems? Yes, absolutely, Scott. <laughs> what I, what I, I mean, both are right, okay? I mean, both are right. Valuations that are all-time highs, so you should be a little bit cautious. But frankly, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen this kind of monetary stimulus. $900 billion in December, another 1.9, I'm sorry, trillion, 900 billion, and now 1.9 trillion, and now a new stimulus package, and a reopening, and a Fed that's still buying, as Joe was saying, and increasing their balance sheet, and a Fed that continues to be dovish. We've never really seen this much gunpowder being thrown at the fire at, at any point before. So I don't, I don't see really how you can bet against this market. To that extent, I'm bullish. I'm actually a little more bullish, frankly, with the cautionary messages out today from the banks. I would be very worried, from what I've been watching from banks for 35 years doing this, if the banks were coming out saying, you got to buy. That would really worry me as markets make new highs. Well, I mean, a lot so of them have, markets right? I mean, these are climb. a lot of well, them have. These are these notes to me seem somewhat new. That all of a sudden everybody's getting they are new. All, all cautious. Well, we've been through this period, Scott. You know, for the last two weeks of a quarter, everything there's no news because everybody's being quiet and it, before they release earnings and markets don't know what to do. And I think that includes the market strategists who work at the banks. That they are being cautious now creates the wall of worry that markets can continue to climb. Should you be cautious? Yes. But I, you, you're looking at earnings for the S&P up 24% this year and forecasts for earnings to increase 17% or so a year for the next couple of years after that. This is a very tough market not to own, but I think you have to be very particular about what you own and know your stocks because we're seeing this rotation into value. You guys have been talking about it all year. You've been so yeah, right on halftime report, given that guidance. But, but we've also, John, had a, a resurgence in momentum and growth. 
right? I mean, we, we talked about the, the growth ETF hitting new highs. And the NASDAQ 100 has hit new highs. So, yes, there was a valuation, uh, I mean, a, a, a move to value. But growth stocks have done quite well lately. Are, are, are we supposed to be cautious because it just feels good to say, you know, that, yeah, you should be a little cautious? <laughs> or, John, is there real reason to be because there's a lot of optimism out there, right, with what lies ahead? Growth is going to be tremendous in the, in the economy. Earnings are going to only improve. Now, I'm sure there's good news already baked in. The question is how much, and we just don't know. Exactly. Just like we didn't know how much was baked in with Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan this morning, Scott. I mean, those numbers were blowout numbers. To see a billion-dollar beat, um, whether it's fixed income and trading or whether it's a different part of their business, the only thing this morning uh, that we got that was at all cautionary was, and it was revised by Jamie Dimon himself, even though it wasn't off the cuff, uh, the release said that, you know, they will be challenged but in the loan side of things. Um, and then he, in his conference call this morning, pulled that back, Scott, and said, well, challenged might not have been the right word. Um, but clearly, uh, there are uh, banks that are challenged by what is going on right here. Um, and Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan hit it out of the park in almost every metric the, the exception, of course, was Jamie well, Dimon. We'll get to the banks the, in a minute. Uh, uh, we'll we'll get to the banks in a minute. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Don't front run me on that. We'll, we'll get there in a second. All right, Gold, I won't. By the way, <laughs> okay. Gold, you, speaking of Goldman, Goldman today actually has a trade mm -hmm. that they would put on for the current environment, and it's right in your wheelhouse, and I wanted, to, I wanted you to talk about it. They recommend that investors buy the May 21st 4,100 to 3,900 put spread to hedge diverse U.S. equity positions ahead of, uh, instead of reducing their equity length by 25%. What do, you, what do you think of that put spread as a hedge, Doc? I think, I think it's exactly, Scott, what you and I talked about last week when 50 cent, that trader that buys those out-of-the-money puts that are approximately a 50 cent call option, that, of course, moves, uh, the VIX does, inverse to the market. So the Goldman trade is exactly that. Let's do some protective strategies. I don't think that's dumb at all. I think that's a very prudent strategy, and you have it on for basically almost six weeks out into the future with that May timeframe, Scott. Carries you through earnings and all the rest. Here's the, you know, is the glass half full or half empty, Scott? Three weeks ago, Germany was woefully behind in vaccinations, and many of us that wanted to travel overseas thought, damn, there goes our summer vacation. But they have quickly caught up um, and now they're vaccinating at almost the same pace, not in the millions of people, but of course, we're a much bigger country, but the similar pace to the United States. That's as of this morning. That's the glass half full, Scott. Now, the glass half empty is the cautionary things we're hearing and the fact that we've got this hundred plus billion dollar valuation. Maybe it's even a hundred and fifty billion valuation over there at Coinbase. So. Frequently, when you have such a big offering, you do see uh, uh, some liquidity pulled back from the rest of the market. And if you don't have as many buyers in the rest of the market, Scott, just look at what's happening right now in many of those stocks that are exposed to yeah. crypto. Look. Riot, blockchain, Marathon, and the like. I mean, I could go through the list and it's just bang, 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 bang. All opened at the highs and then they were sold fast. Now you, now you sound like Emerald. But look, there, there are reasons to, 
cite euphoria, <laughs> right? I mean, okay, in, in a week in which we sure. had the biggest SPAC deal ever, right? Gerstner yesterday on our show mm -hmm. talking about, about that. And now you have Coinbase, looks like it's going to get close to $100 billion with a valuation because what the indicated price is well above the reference price as we await that first trade there. Yep. So, we're, you know, we're watching all that. Doc, though, you have been there. There's there's the live look. Three sixty six is the indicative price right now. You have arguably been the most cautious of late on this program. Right. You've said you were looking for a pullback. Mm -hmm. Your trading actions sort of followed your words. Uh, is does that still reflect where you are? Yes, sir. Um, and it's not because all I, I don't see the same things as Jenny or Mike or Joe. I do. I see a lot of good things out there, Scott. But because of where we are, in particular with the VIX and that trade that you just detailed from Goldman Sachs, which is basically the other way to play the VIX, is with an S&P put spread rather than buying calls in the VIX, um, I think that it behooves us not to be in stocks right now but to be in call spreads and or protective put spreads because you're setting a limit to how much risk you're taking on when you buy calls if all or rather when you buy stock you have the whole downside of the company when you buy that so when i'm bulled up that's when i'm more in stocks and i'm selling calls right now uh, premiums are cheap they've been the cheapest we've seen in over a year and for that reason, I want to be in those calls, Scott. And so to answer your question directly, yes, I'm still cautious, even though I cited that good news out mm -hmm. of Europe that I hope spreads from Germany to the rest of the continent, that we start seeing those vaccinations pick up. And if we do, that's, the, again, part of the global cycle. Instead of just the U.S. Um, being the baton leader, okay. we can have some other people carrying some of that as well. The headline from you then is going to be, it behooves us not to be in stocks right now, that you would rather be hedged through options? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 100%, Scott. All right. All right. So, so, Jenny, why don't you take that on? It behooves us not to be okay. in stocks so right now. Right. I, I obviously disagree, but John and I manage portfolios very differently, and that's important. When we use the word euphoria mm -hmm. before, I want to be careful with not applying that to the whole market. And we need to remember that there's throughout the past couple of years, there's pockets of euphoria. If there's pockets of euphoria, then there's also pockets of opportunity. So the objective is to avoid the pockets of euphoria and find the pockets of opportunity. In my case, because I manage a value-leaning portfolio, there's tons of pockets of opportunity. So I'm not looking at the FANG stocks, which currently are trading at a multiple of about 39 times forward earnings. To me, that's a euphoric. There's too much there. When we talk about risk assets and that they're going to pause or come down, I think that those are in that camp. Wow. I think when Michael said you need to be very particular right now, right? Maybe they plateau, maybe they come down. Who knows? But, but you're I telling don't me think the, that's where you the think the Fang stocks are, are 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 exhibiting euphoria. I mean, I can understand if you cited some other parts Sustaining of the, the, euphoria? Tech, the tech spectrum, but the Fang stocks are are way overvalued. They still make, do you know they still make up almost 24% of the, of the S&P 500? That's huge. And if you look at any historical time period where the top five stocks have made up that much, and you look at the following 10 years, they either plateau and or trickle down. So to me, that's kind of euphoric since they're holding on to that nearly 25% waiting in the S&P 500. That's not where I want to be. Sure, there are areas with way more euphoria in them, like the SPAC market. 
Um, that's not where I want to be. There's wow. really there's a okay. lot more out there that you can do that's cheaper. All right, Joe. Um, so Joe Cherenova, right? Something. I mean, Mike, sorry. J just sorry, Jenny. I'll come back to you, J Joe. I mean, you you've been looking for more right. money to move back into the to the fangs, and those stocks have been hitting new highs, right? Whether it's Alphabet or Facebook or Microsoft, which we include in that group, Apple's gotten going again. So now I'm being told that the fang stocks are, are euphoric, um, and John told me not to be in <laughs> stocks. Well, you want to make a headline? <laughs> but be exposed. Be well, exposed to the stocks, Scott. Get your exposure right. not in the equities, but in those calls. I hear you, but it's still a statement that you're making in, in your overall view. Yes, sir. Can I say one yes, sentence? Sir. Do what Michael said, which is be particular about what you own. I think that's the real key. Be particular. Joe? Okay. So I own Apple, I own Microsoft, I own Alphabet. There's times, and I think what we do well on this show is, is we, we, we communicate when there are times to kind of put your foot on the gas pedal and really accelerate. And I felt that that was the moment in March uh, to do it. I think as we come into earnings, maybe you want to take your foot a little bit off the gas pedal. Uh, I would liken it to being on a ride in Disney and sitting on a ride in Disney and having someone next to you say, okay, here comes a really big drop or here comes a dangerous turn. Uh, I understand that. I set expectations. It doesn't mean I get off the ride. I'm not moving away from Apple. I'm not moving away from Microsoft. I'm not moving away from Alphabet. I believe in their business for the long term, and I think this is the right climate. Um, I think, though, on a day where we are having an IPO for Coinbase and we are introducing cryptocurrencies as potentially a traditional asset, Scott, it just makes me think about one thing, and that's liquidity. So through the first three and a half months of this year, we are up 10%. Over the next three and a half months, if I'm going to set expectations for myself, is it reasonable to believe that we're going to go up 10% in the S&P? Probably not, given the economic climate and given the fact that the Fed would have to extend the growth of their balance sheet above $8 trillion. What do you mean the economic climate? I don't see climate? that as realistic. What's wrong with the economic climate, right? <laughs> It's as sunny as, as, it, the as you can see. The economic climate right? is overwhelmingly strong. It's overwhelmingly strong. So to you're my just point. A, so you're just so in I, the camp. You're just in the camp that the Fed's going to be pushed to act, and then that's going to going to ruin the market. That's where we're at. I think you have to have you have to have the expectation and be realistic that at some point liquidity, which is growing exponentially and nourishing all these risk assets, at some point that is going to experience a pullback. And when that does, you're going to see a moderation in pricing for assets themselves. Right. It does not mean you don't want to be invested. But right. I think that moment's coming a little bit sooner okay. than we think. All right. That's what I was trying to get to. It's like the other part I get. No kidding. Right. I mean, at some point, the Fed's going to take its foot off the gas. Jeremy Siegel said exactly sure. that, too. But until they do that, he's not worried. Now, I'm not saying his view is going to be right. But I'm just suggesting that until the Fed actually signals that it's doing anything because it's quite the opposite, it's fully 180 at this point, right? Powell hasn't said anything to even make you think that he's thinking about thinking about thinking about doing anything. And he said as he much as not in his exact words or whatever. <laughs> no, he doesn't have to. The market, will, the market is smart right. enough and efficient enough to understand the moment that Chairman Powell will yeah, have right. to and communicate that. And if we were there, the market rates will be, tell you right. that way in advance. Right. And it's not telling you that now because the tenure is at 164. So the market's all good with where we are now. So, Michael Farr, 
And we're going to get to Coinbase in a second as we await that first trade. Leslie Picker's waiting, and she knows this story better than everybody else. So we'll get to her in a second. Cyclical, though, versus growth, right? That's essentially what this conversation becomes, Michael. Where do you want to be today? Well, I think you want to know what balance sheets you own and know why the company is going to be able to increase earnings and increase their sales and increase their uh, you know, share of TAM. I, I think that you have to look at that. I, I think there's a little bit more of a breakdown here, though, Scott, that we ought to address with some of these tech stocks. There's a great article on CNBC.com. Beware the strategy of buying unprofitable tech stocks. Bernstein warns. Great on CNBC.com. It says that there's like a third of all the tech stocks without earnings trading over 15 times earnings. There's a sector of tech that doesn't have anything underneath it, and the prices continue to soar. I look at peg ratios a lot like Jim Labenthal very closely, right? So we want to see if there's real earnings growth with some of these FANG stocks. I think a lot of them are still reasonably priced, uh, though a lot of the cyclicals, I think, will provide you a more solid opportunity to navigate a pullback that's clearly going to come, but it'll be temporary. All right. Well, just as we're having this conversation about the Fed chair, Steve Leisman has breaking news from Jay Powell. Steve? Was it just coincidence, uh, Scott, that you were all over the Fed chair while he was speaking? I mean, that's a good coincidence. Here we go. Uh, the Fed chair saying that raising rates before 2022 is highly unlikely. He's in a conversation right now at the Economic Club of Washington with David Rubenstein. He says changing rates is not time-based. It is, quote, outcome-based. And we're going to talk about that in a second. He says they're going to keep rates unchanged until the, the economy meets a three-part test. Let me give you that three-part test. Recovery in the labor market is effectively achieved. Inflation reaches 2%, and it's on track to run mod modestly above 2% for some time. He says, we don't just want to hit the base of it. We want to be up there and at that 2% for a while. So 2%, you get there, that's not going to be a trigger for the Fed to hike. Um, asked about the debt and the deficit. He says, now is not the time to prioritize the deficit. It's on an unsustainable track long-term but not in the short term. And for all you fixed income folks out there, the Fed is undecided at this point on whether it will allow the balance sheet as it did back in 2018 to actually run off. He did say that the sequence of events will be to reduce or gradually reduce when they get around to doing this. They meet that test of substantial further improvement, that they will meet that test of uh, uh, reducing the balance sheet and then going to zero new purchases, but undecided if they'll let the balance sheet go down. Initially, they're saying, Scott, they will reinvest. So they're thinking about this stuff, but no imminent action at all. Uh, Powell very much sticking to his line that there's nothing about the economy right now, either the inflation numbers or in the economic numbers or in the fiscal spending side, that's causing him to change his tune very much. Scott? He might as well just introduce himself from now on until something changes. Hi, I'm Jay Powell, and I'm dovish. Right. Because, I mean, there's no reason to believe that he's anything but based on the comments with Sarah and the comments that you just said, even as some tried to parse his comments on 60 Minutes as he was somehow growing hawkish. I, I, I didn't get that. No, I don't know who would. I, I didn't hear that particular parsing, uh, Scott. I don't I don't see it. I think he's been very consistent about this. I think the thing that would cause Powell to change his tune would be, uh, I mean, essentially if the song changes, if you will, and that is that um, uh, if the economic numbers start to come in much faster than anticipated. Remember, Scott, if we do a million jobs a month, we still got to do that eight times to put the uh, uh, people who have lost their, their jobs 
back to work. Um, if, if we were to have uh, several bigger or higher than or hotter than expected inflation numbers, we'd have to do that for a while to get to two percent. Right now, the argument in the in the bond market, if you will, is whether or not the Fed hikes at the end of 22 or sometime in 2023. That's a year off, Scott. That's a lot of patience. So yeah. two things have happened that I think are critical. Powell has convinced the markets that inflation is probably going to be temporary and that the Fed is going to look through this. But I think the markets, Scott, have also independently come to that same conclusion. The Fed and the markets, the consensus of the markets, do not disagree on this critical point as far as I can tell. Yeah, well, well the market would be reacting far differently if, if they did. Steve, thank you, as always. Steve Leisman, our senior yeah, economics sure. reporter. Let's move to Coinbase now. Still awaiting the first trade. It goes public today with that direct listing on the NASDAQ. Leslie Picker following the action ahead of that first trade. It's going to be a huge valuation because we had yeah. the last indication we had was around 365 or so. Yeah, uh, and I'm told uh, by sources close to the process they're expecting it to open in about 20 minutes or so, give or take maybe about 15, 20 minutes from now. You can see there the indicative price, 374.50. That is just shy of the high for where that stock traded in the first quarter, which was 375, according to the prospectus. Now, that implies a valuation of about $100 billion for this company. So if you take the market valuation for ICE, the owner of the NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange, and combine that with the NASDAQ, you still don't really get a $100 billion valuation. So, you know, I, I've been chatting with some investors about this. You know, how do you feel about, you know, where this thing is looking like it's going to open up? Are you comfortable at these levels? Are you buying into these levels? Uh, and so far, the folks I've spoken with, are they're a little concerned about one main thing, and that is how exactly to value this company. You see that also kind of popping up in these analyst reports, that the, the trading nature of Coinbase is expected to be so tied, so inextricably tied to the volatility of Bitcoin that if you're trying to model this out and project what it looks like from a future cash flow perspective, that's really difficult to do unless you have a crystal ball and you know exactly what Bitcoin is doing. Uh, just, you know, for, as an example, I was looking at a compass point research note this morning. And how often do you hear this from analysts where they basically say, uh, you know, we have estimates. We might throw those out the window and we might do it very, very frequently. That's what they said. They may need to they expect to need to update estimates, likely in a material manner and possibly frequently. That's like the first caveat that they give in the analyst note. I think a lot of investors feel that same way. Uh, and so they are looking at this, but they're looking at this with caution and trying to understand what price levels they feel comfortable with right now. Yeah. So stay with me, uh, if you would, Leslie, because Joe Terranova, um, who's always out there looking for growth and quality in the same cocktail, says you'd be a buyer today. You'd buy Coinbase today I on would. the open market. I, I would. I, I'm interested to see where their valuation is going to be. First of all, I think you need to look at this in terms of it being a transaction exchange more similar to the CME, which is derivatives based. That has a higher valuation than both ICE and the NASDAQ itself. But this, this is a moment in which institutional money, which never wanted to basically directly touch Bitcoin, they're now able to uh, touch Bitcoin indirectly through a more traditional vehicle, and that vehicle is now uh, the toll booth that is being publicly listed in the form of Coinbase. So I think a lot of capital, Scott, has hidden out, whether it's in Tesla 
or in Square or in GBTC, trying to indirectly get that institutional exposure to Bitcoin, I wouldn't be surprised to see some flows of capital come out of there in a very transitory nature. But this is the opportunity and this is a very powerful moment for cryptocurrencies to become more of a traditional asset class. This is further expanding out the infrastructure that's going to introduce ETFs. And I view this uh, from a transaction capacity uh, for presenting the exchange itself as a nice vehicle for institutions to indirectly touch Bitcoin. Let me just be more specific. I should have just asked you this directly. So will you be a buyer today? I will be a buyer today um, somewhere around the three and a quarter or below area. I'm a little bit concerned about having to pay higher, but that doesn't mean that I won't. Uh, I'm, I want to see how it trades initially. I initially, I have, a, I have an order in to buy at three and a quarter. Oh, okay. I realize I'm probably going to have to, I'm probably going to have to raise that a little bit. Um, and I want to see how it trades. I want to see what the volume is. And I'll use discretion in terms of uh, getting in. So and the positioning that I'm going to take is going to be a small one. But it's a way to get, it's a way to get the exposure. Yeah, I hear that you. That I haven't been able to get to Bitcoin. And Leslie, I wonder, you know, how indicative Joe's comments are to what you're hearing from other investors across the street. Yeah, that, uh, it, you know, I think people that I've spoken with, some of them, when they give their price targets, it's a little bit below uh, where Joe was mentioning at three and a quarter. I've heard people say, you know, they'd be interested in buying in closer to 300 levels. Um, but that said, I think he's right about the fact that people see this as a way to get exposure to crypto without having to change, you know, their various contracts with LPs, with other people. Uh, in order to do that, it's a much easier way. You've got a listed company on the NASDAQ stock market. Um, you know, what's interesting about this process is that they've done the direct listing route, so they didn't have to and chose not to go around and speak and, and market the deal to institutional investors. They are basically the way that these direct listings work is anyone can buy shares when this begins trading. There is no preferential treatment for institutions. And I think that calls into just the ethos of this whole company. Uh, over 90% of their trading volumes are done by retail investors. Retail is the bread and butter of what Coinbase is right now. Now they have a plan to expand to institutional investors, uh, but it'll be interesting to see how that's reflected in the public markets today as well. John Najarian, you're, you're our crypto aficionado, if I could call you that, mm -hmm. what, what do you think about Coinbase? You are, you, are you buying in? Uh, no, Scott, uh, I'm not. But that's not because I don't believe in the company. I truly do. Um, and for comments comparing, you know, for instance, NASDAQ and CME even, and lumping two or three of them together and still not getting to the valuation that Coinbase is, that's the problem that some of us have. But what I'd point out, Scott, is several things. Number one, last year they did a billion three in revenue. They've already done a billion eight in revenue in the first quarter of this year. So the growth is there. Number two, securities lending. Uh, we all know that you know people that have stocks and lend them out, that's big business. People that have coins to lend, Coinbase is one of the largest. Binance is the biggest, Coinbase is right up there with that lending practice where they can lend those and make a fortune on that. So when you're looking and saying, well, if I wanted to compare it, for instance, to the CME, is the CME both an exchange and a broker? Because this is, you buy the coins there, um, they get all of those assets and so forth. And Leslie, I, I'm not saying you're wrong, you're a great reporter, but 
I believe that the institutional number is way north of 10 percent on Coinbase right now. Um, when I read through the S1, that's what I found was that their Coinbase Pro and their uh, side that really goes after institutions, Scott, is growing by leaps and bounds. And then you've got data and all the rest. I mean, this one is like taking one of the best brokers on the street and putting it together with an exchange mm -hmm. so that they can do all those things I just mentioned, SEC lending, um, the interest on margin and all the rest. Scott, this thing is a behemoth. And about 20% of my assets right now are in a host of uh, digital assets, everything from Bitcoin to Doge. And I love that activity that you yeah, get know you do. over at Coinbase as well as the others. Leslie, let me give you the last word. I want to take a break after that. I want to make sure we're back to get the first trade in, in which I'm sure we'll hear from you again. Les? Yeah, well, what I think is fascinating about this one is it's the largest direct listing that we've seen uh, at $100 billion by market value. That is above and beyond what we've seen with Palantir, what we've seen with Slack, Spotify, other companies that have pursued this method of going public. And so, uh, you know, it shows that this this way of becoming a public company is is possible at the you know, some of the largest levels that we've seen. So, um, you know, I think that's also kind of a reflection uh, on the ability to execute some of these new IPO methods compared with what we've seen traditionally. All right. We'll see you, um, I think, in, you know, before our show ends, hopefully, uh, if this thing opens up. <laughs> Leslie Picker, thank you. We still have to do John's unusual activity. Goldman had those blowout numbers along with uh, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo's earnings. We have to trade that. We got a lot to do. We'll be right back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. A Minnesota police officer who fatally shot Dante Wright during a traffic stop will be charged with second-degree manslaughter. County prosecutors made the announcement just three days after the incident and following a third night of protests. President Joe Biden will say that the September 11th attacks cannot explain why American troops are still in Afghanistan 20 years later. In a little under two hours, Biden is expected to lay out a timeline for U.S. troop withdrawal ahead of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. A new CDC report shows that keeping the middle seat open in commercial jets significantly reduces the risk of COVID exposure. Researchers found that virus exposure dropped 23 to 57 percent when middle seats were left unoccupied. And the man who was convicted of running the largest Ponzi scheme in history has died in prison. Bernie Madoff and his firm received more than $17 billion from clients after the scheme unraveled, clients thought they had $65 billion in their accounts. About $13 billion has been recovered. Bernie Madoff was 82 years old. Scott, you're now up to date. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon, as we wait that first trade in Coinbase and its direct listing, let's first talk about some moves that you all are making today. Joe, you bought Freeport McMoran. Why is that? I, I, mm. I sure did. Well, first of all, I read Jeff Curry and Goldman Sachs' note 
and is just so compelling in terms of talking about copper, about the new oil, it being the green metal, and being so incredibly important in terms of transitioning the economy from hydrocarbons towards renewables. Just think about the usage of copper uh, for electric vehicles, for solar. Uh, it is, is going to be so purposeful. The demand is going to rise, as Jeff talks about, 600% for copper by 2030. So uh, it's indicative of my feeling towards the market, which is, you know, I think there's sunny skies ahead. I'm not afraid to buy Freeport McMoran up 40% year to date. Wow. I think there's a lot further to go. And hopefully for me, it's a long-term investment. Jenny, did I hear you react to that news? Was was that you? <laughs> well. Yeah, we own this in our growth portfolio. We've owned it for a long time, and our investment thesis is the same as Joe's, including the fact that even though we're up a tremendous amount in this position, we think the runway ahead is really long. So I was excited that Joe and I are finally on the same page on one. <laughs> How about this other this stock that you bought, uh, Medical Properties Trust, MPW, 5.2% yes, yield. Much Tell less, me. Much less exciting, but really wonderful for those of us who love the cash flows. This is a company that owns 388 hospitals, mostly in the US, but also in Europe and Australia. They have, like you said, a 5.2% dividend yield, trade at 14 times earnings. They actually grew their earnings and their dividend throughout the last year. And it's neat to own a company like this because you can look back to the great financial crisis and the pandemic and see two really distressed market environments where a company was able to sustain the dividend, sustain earnings, keep paying out, you can really depend on it. Um, so this was a nice addition. The other thing that I thought was significant about buying this was, for us, it was a return to a totally normal investment process. There were no fire alarms. There was no note that had to go out to clients explaining why this is weird and dislocated and disrupted, disrupted from the environment. It was just a normal process where we could talk to the management in a reasonable amount of time, understand the company, invest at the right point. And I think that overall shows us the change in the market that we're seeing this year, which is getting back to normal. So it was really reassuring and exciting to buy it. Okay. Reminder, we're still waiting for that first trade on Coinbase. There's the indicative price right now, $375 in the direct listing. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back, continue to follow that. We'll trade Goldman's blowout as well, along with J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo. And their earnings, Doc's got unusual. We're back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. 
Mentioned the big story today, the other one, bank earnings. There you go. Goldman Sachs, clearly the big winner, although Wells Fargo's up better than 5.5%. But Michael Farr, that was a blowout quarter from Goldman. You own the stock. Uh, return wow. on equity, 31%. Jim Cramer says the stock's going to 400 uh, $40 of earnings. Put a 10 multiple on that, and that's where you go. What are your thoughts? It's only 1.3 times book, Scott. It has had blowout quarter after blowout quarter. I've never seen a $5 billion beat in a single quarter. That's what Goldman just did. I think it's a powerhouse. I think they're expanding and diversifying business lines. They're working on profitability. Uh, they're diversifying. I really like what they're doing. I hope Kramer's right, but I think as a core holding, given the dividend and the business it's a great company, uh, and I'm thrilled. I've owned it forever. Yeah. Joe, you love Goldman as well. I mean, you've, you've said as much on this show. I'm not even thinking about thinking about selling Goldman Sachs. <laughs> uh, obviously, underwriting <laughs> all of those SPACs paid, paid off in terms of fees, didn't it? Yeah, right. Uh, total home run. And, 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 John, what about J.P. Morgan? Like I say, Scott, um, the only thing on the conference call was Jamie pulled back, uh, did the chairman, put from that statement about challenged. Um, well, that's not the said, only thing. That might not have been the right word. That's not the only well, thing, right? I mean, they, they, did have, they did have more loan loss reserves released than, than expected, and he was clear in saying that, you know, that's mm -hmm. not going to continue forever. I mean, th th that maybe is throwing some doubt on the quote-unquote quality of the earnings. That, that's, sig <laughs> that's significant. <laughs> right. It, it is. Um, but the numbers were also really significant, Scott. Sure. I mean, the multi-billion dollar beats that Michael talked about and so forth, they were present over there at J.P. Morgan as well. And, you know, now it's a question of both those firms, of course, avoided any of the problems with Archegos. Um, both of them continued to grow their book to the affluent markets that they serve. Um, obviously, J.P. Morgan extends that through the credit cards and the rest. And just, uh, you know, I, I think you got to own some J.P. Morgan, which I do, but I aggressively write calls. We're at 164 in the 10-year right now, so I think that's plenty. But I think we're likely to see that steeper yield curve kick in again, Scott, over the next several months. And I think that's another reason to continue to hold both yeah, stocks. That stock's up, to, as is J.P.M., 20.5% year to date. All right, we're going to take another quick break as we wait for that first trade from Coinbase. There it is, 375, the indicated price. We're back right after this. John, let's, let's do uh, unusual activity while we're waiting for Coinbase. I'll do it, and I'll do it pretty quick, Scott. Uh, take a look at eBay, uh, because with the stock at about 63.80, they're buying the upside calls at the 68 strike out in May. Now, this is the May 14th expiration, not the full May expiration. Uh, nonetheless, it does carry you through uh, earnings, which are about the 28th of April, Scott. I'll be in this trade probably for the next two to three weeks, and I really will stress that I buy the at the money and sell higher. I don't necessarily buy those 68 calls. Second trade, um, HWM. This one, stocks just shy of $33, and they're aggressively in here buying July much further out in time. July 35 calls. I bought these uh, 33 calls and I'm selling upside calls against it. That one I'll probably be in for most of the next three months, like the upside of both of these, Scott. Okay. John, thank you for that. We will take a break. We'll come back as we await Coinbase.
We think we're getting closer. Leslie Picker, how's it looking? 377 the indicated price at this time. Indicated price keeps going up, Scott, to your point. I'm told it will be closer to 1 o'clock, whether it fits in your show or the next one remains to be seen. I also wanted to clarify something that John and I were going back and forth on with regard to their institutional versus retail breakdown. I didn't have those numbers uh, at the top of my brain at the time, but I looked them up. And when it comes to transaction revenue, which makes up 96% of net revenue for Coinbase, Retail represents over a billion dollars, a bill 1.04. Uh, institutional represents 56 million. So the breakdown is actually 95% of transaction revenue is from retail investors, whereas the remaining 5% comes from institutions. So that is an area that this company hopes to grow over time. Yeah, for certain. All right, Leslie, let's take a quick break. Uh, I know you'll stay put uh, just in case. We'll be back right after this along with Final Trades. All right, guys, let's do final trades as we still await Coinbase. Jenny, what do you have for us? SL Green. We've seen um, in the last Scott, couple I've weeks got- that companies like J.P. Morgan, oh, go, go sorry, ahead, JP Morgan and Google want to return their workers to the office, 5.1% dividend yield. Uh, I think as people return, we'll see, we'll see renewed value in those assets. Okay. Doc, you, you were saying, what's up? <laughs> sorry about that, Scott. You cut out partway through, so I didn't hear the voice. PLBY. Um, they're doing NFTs with the Winklevi and their nifty gateway. I think that's enough to drive this one higher. I bought calls. Joe, quick. Marriott, I expect it to take out 160 in the near term. Michael. Jenny says, be particular and safe. I like Pepsi before the earnings here. Market multiple growing and a great dividend, almost 3%. Jenny, um, you know, we are waiting nice. Coinbase, and, and Joe said he'd buy it. Today, albeit at a little bit of a lower price, as we now it's 380, uh, which is the indicated price. You're going to get about a hundred billion dollar valuation um, for for this company. Jenny, what's your view on Coinbase? Would you buy it? No way. I'm in the John Nigerian camp, but you know, I it's a great story. But I don't buy stories. I buy numbers, and the numbers here are illogical. They're saying their total addressable market is three and a half billion people. Everyone who uses a cell phone—that's ridiculous. They're charging their individual users a 1.4% transaction fee. That's 95%. But they say they want to grow their institutions that pay 10 basis points. So there's going to be natural margin compression there. In addition, they are the leader. They are a great company. But what we know is that innovation is always competed away, and their leadership will be competed away. It's too good a story. Others are going to get into this space and take and take share from them. So the numbers don't make sense for me, so right. I'm out. Well, the, the numbers that matter most right there, the indicated price of $380. That was off of a reference price of $250. You are looking at a valuation about $100 billion. It is a historic moment for cryptocurrency, no matter how you slice it. That does it for us. The, uh, the exchange is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.